It's Thursday, October 24th. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Eugene ranks first in the U.S., but for a rather dubious honor. In Corvallis, regional NAACP leaders are speaking out about a case of alleged racial profiling and excessive use of force with an Oregon State University student. And the Springfield City Council finally votes on a controversial rezoning proposal that affects a mobile home park. These stories and more in this week's edition of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Northwest Passage podcast. I'm news reporter Brian Bull. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. News reporter Mallory Begay. And we'll be looking at the news that was this week across the city and across the region. And Ani, you're our morning anchor with fresh eyes on the headlines every day for our station. Uh, What were some of the top stories that you saw this week? So this was a very busy week, Brian. Let's start with Salem. Foes of a new law that grants undocumented immigrants Oregon driver's licenses have been working for months now to repeal the policy. And this week they were told they might need to start the process over again. Secretary of State Bev Clarno announced that Initiative Petition 43 didn't actually pass constitutional muster and cannot proceed. It's basically on a technicality. Clarno says the wording of the petition doesn't include the full text of the proposed law as required by the Oregon Constitution. One of the chief petitioners, Mark Callahan, says he's not proposing a new law, so he doesn't need to actually put the text in there of the current law. Um, He's just pushing for the current law to be removed. And a note, House Bill 2015 was among the most controversial bills Oregon lawmakers passed this year. It eliminates the requirements that a person provide proof of legal presence in order to get a state driver's license. And it was a very heated debate during that process. And now, obviously, it's they're trying to undo it. So just based on what you've seen of the issue already, Ani, what, what do you think is fueling some of the opposition against this bill? I think it's part of a bigger national conversation that we're having right now about undocumented people. And so this was an effort here in Oregon to offer some rights um, because having a driver's license does help you get jobs and other services. And so I think this is kind of some pushback to that. Ani, was there anything else that you saw? So we actually had a lot of news this week related to housing, both in the Eugene Springfield area and then in the state as a whole. And actually, Brian, you kind of did the umbrella picture uh, this week about that. That I did, Ani. Uh, There was a new report that was released by security.org. And what they found by looking at federal data, namely the uh, homelessness point-in-time data from 2018, that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development does every year. They found that Eugene, Oregon ranks first in the country for the rate of homelessness. It outdid every other city, including major ones like Los Angeles, Seattle, New York, and Las Vegas. They used the data and they adjusted for population, which is how we came to be number one. Oregon itself ranks fourth in the nation for the rates of homelessness. I talked with John Dedrick. He is the policy analyst for the city manager's office for the city of Eugene. And he told me he wasn't particularly surprised at the findings. And then he shared what city officials are working on to help offset the rate here in the city. The city, however, does have a strong role with building affordable housing. We'll be working with property managers of existing multi-unit, multi-family facilities to help folks that may have a federal voucher that provides for housing. The city is also going to be taking an active role. It's working on a 75-bed emergency. 
emergency shelter. It's important to note, too, that the point-in-time data is for Lane County, um, not solely isolated to Eugene, but obviously Eugene has a very significant portion of homelessness. Brian, did John Dedrick have any explanation as to why Eugene, of all places, is a top site for the homeless? You know, Ani, he couldn't really give one specific reason. And while it's a fair question, there are many possible explanations that I've come across myself through the years. Uh, People have attributed largely the uh, housing market and the steep climb of housing prices across the region. Uh, People complain that um, they're not only being priced out of their neighborhoods, they're being priced out of housing altogether. Uh, Some blame the drug and crime culture. Others say there's a uh, lack of sufficient mental health care services across Oregon. And there's also access to cities like Eugene from the I-5 corridor, which stretches from Vancouver to San Diego, which many homeless, also known as travelers, uh, like to access. Related to this story is that uh, as we get into the colder seasons, people are more concerned now about where the homeless go when it hits freezing temperatures overnight. And Mallory, I understand that you actually have an update on uh, warming centers here across the uh, metropolitan area. Yeah, so uh, a couple of months ago, Egan Warming Centers, they they were looking for another Springfield site because the site that they used last year was only temporary. So this year, they were scrambling to find a new location, and they eventually found one. The city of Springfield helped them find uh, the new location, which is the Springfield Memorial Center. So this is another year-long temporary term for the that the Egan centers can use. After this season, they'll go back to looking for another more permanent solution because I think this is something that keeps coming up is they're looking for new locations every season. They're also adding a women-only site at the Eugene Episcopal Church of the Resurrection on Hilliard Street. Okay. And so that brings the total number of shelters this year to nine. I remember, too, that not only do they spend a lot of the warmer season trying to find temporary sites, but as we get closer to the actual drop in temperatures, uh, volunteers are very important as well. Did they give any updates as to how the uh, volunteer drive is going? I talked with the coordinator, Tim Black, and he says for every night that they open, they need around 300 volunteers. So this year they're looking to figure out different ways to expedite the process so that there's better coordination and better communications between the different sites. So we also had some other housing news coming out of Springfield. Earlier this week, the Springfield City Council um, approved the rezoning of the Patrician Mobile Home Park to mixed-use commercial. This was something that had been delayed several times. Brian, you had covered uh, this story, um, and I jumped in this week because you were busy with about 10,000 other things. So the owner of the park, Urban Transitions LLC, had argued that the change will stimulate job growth and provide new housing options and maybe the construction of apartments or restaurants uh, on that site. Opponents, of course, say that rezoning will lead to patrician residents possibly becoming homeless. The 13-plus acre park contains over 80 manufactured and mobile homes for residents ages 55 and older. They will likely have to relocate, but they do have a little bit of time. The landlord has asked residents to sign an amendment to their lease that would ensure it would stay open till January 2023. So about four years for them to ideally find a new place to live. Right. And as you mentioned, though, with housing prices being what they are, that could be challenging. And for a lot of them, they appreciated being where they were, not just because it was 
a home per se, but also because it was very close to a lot of the amenities. I've been through that area. It's very close to several major shopping centers. It's very close to I-5. But I think that's also the reason why it was seen as a commercially feasible property as well, which led to this rezoning vote. A lot of people very uh, split and divided and upset about this uh, vote. It's something that just in walking around Eugene, as as we all do, and kind of overhearing conversations, um, just even in the locker room at the Y last week, I overheard a couple of women talking about it. So I think it's definitely been on people's minds because it's kind of, you know, we talk about the housing crisis in a big picture sort of way, but this is such a specific kind of tangible example of what happens. You know, this is a mobile home park. So these people uh, being 55 and older are generally on fixed incomes, lower income. And so they may not have a lot of options when it does come time to move. There's another story that came out this week that's been very difficult for people to look at, and that was a hazing incident that uh, was reported out of Cottage Grove High School. There was a report that came out late last month from a junior varsity football player and his family that he had been assaulted, essentially violated with a broomstick, and this was done in the presence of up to 10 classmates in a locker room during a hazing process. Hazing is just one of those issues that comes up time and time again. It's seen in a lot of activities and groups. We've seen it in sports, the military, the Greek system, other situations where basically there's some element of hierarchy. And there are acts usually involving some form of submission, often humiliation. Uh, In some cases, this can be as basic as someone having to clean after a senior member or perhaps as lighthearted as, say, a football player wearing a dress and wig during practice, which I saw during my high school years. But in this instance, it sounds like it was a very dark, grotesque, and physically demeaning act that has really angered a lot of people in the community. This begs the question how often this has been going on at the school and with this particular uh, activity, and if there have been other acts perhaps that have been ignored or swept under the rug because it's seen, quote-unquote, as tradition. The act is referred to as brooming, and if you Google the term, if you're feeling brave enough, it's been an issue at many schools for at least 20 years. Adding to the fear of this particular case out of Cottage Grove is that the involved parties, all minors, were actually cited with physical harassment instead of sexual assault, as the victim claimed. I talked to Cottage Grove Police Chief Scott Shepard as to what may come of these arrests, and he said that community service and jail time aren't out of the question, but I am also not getting a lot of information back from the school or the district. Uh, I've left messages with them and have not heard as to whether any further disciplinary action was going to be taken or if the involved parties, particularly two male athletes who seem to be the instigators of this act, would be removed from the team or not. And another controversial story that seems to kind of uh, gained new life in the last week comes out of Oak Hill School, an incident involving actually two bobcats. Uh, There was one bobcat that showed up and appeared inside an office building, and then there was another one that was found on the grounds, examined and released. But the uh, fear surrounds the first one, and what had happened was is that the, the small uh, juvenile bobcat had been found inside an office building, and so Oregon State Police Fish and Wildlife Troopers and Lane County deputies were called in. And in short, the responders removed the animal, and it was initially reported that the animal was quote-unquote put down due to behavior that they deemed abnormal, and so therefore they felt that it could pose a threat to people at the school. 
Brooks Fay of the group Predator Defense here in Eugene pried into the matter a little bit more and uh, through an email exchange he had with a ODFW biologist, learned that quote-unquote blunt force trauma was used on the bobcat. And it was this revelation that reignited Fay's argument that a better process should have been used on the animal. This animal was brutalized from the moment it was captured from Lane County Sheriff's Department all the way to the state police, all the way to having its head bashed in. It's as, as bad as you get. We're going to be pursuing the, every avenue on this, including reviewing animal abuse statute. So, Brian, um, when you talk to Faye, what does he want to have happen after all of this? Faye would like a formal inquiry by the ODFW Commission to review the matter further. Uh, I did put the question of blunt force trauma to both the ODFW and the Oregon State Police, and both responded that it's in accordance with euthanasia guidelines put out by the American Veterinary Medical Association. And I did look it up, and it is listed as a humane way to put down an animal under certain circumstances if done properly. But again, for animal rights advocates, animal welfare advocates, I think a lot of them would prefer to see, I guess, what they would consider a more humane method of putting down the animal, such as injection. For a lot of people who care about the animals, I think the question will always remain how this could have been addressed. So, Mallory, I also understand that you have some news out of Corvallis. I did a story on an update on the incident involving an OSU student named Genesis Hansen. Uh, Hansen was arrested for refusing to show identification and for interfering with a police officer. On October 13th, she was stopped by an Oregon State trooper for riding her bicycle on the wrong side of the driveway. Hansen identifies as an African-American woman, and so there were several bystanders who were filming the interaction between Hansen and the trooper, and later a Corvallis police officer also arrived, and that was requested by Hansen. And here's part of that exchange from the body cam footage. You're under arrest. I don't answer questions. Stop! 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 Okay, you're under arrest. 831, send us more. Stop. Hey, stop. She's Get not, back now. She's not complying. Okay, roll onto your stomach. Hey, I will comply. I need both of you roll, to get off of roll. me. That's not going to happen. Roll I, on I your stomach. I need you to get off of me. Roll on your stomach. I need you. I'm not moving. Roll on your stomach. I'm not moving. So videos of the arrest had been circulating on the internet since Sunday, and it's caused a lot of outcry among community members who feel Hansen was racially profiled, and that when officers arrived and arrested her, they were using excessive force. This week, the Oregon State Police released body cam footage of the arrest. It's about 38 minutes long. The video doesn't show the initial stop, but it does pick up where Hansen and the Oregon State Police officer are going back and forth about whether Hansen should show identification. And also happening this week, the NAACP's area-wide conference and the local Corvallis Albany chapter released a statement condemning the arrest and have demanded that charges against Hansen be dropped, that both the state and Corvallis police issue apologies to Hansen, and for OSU to offer Hansen support and resources to deal with the incident. And they also want to meet with the city of Corvallis to make sure that this doesn't happen again. 
Uh, one more update came in yesterday, and that's that the Oregon State Police and OSU have ended their contract. Uh, it's unclear whether this is actually related to the incident, because in a statement, the Oregon State Police say this was over a staffing issue. But this relationship was brought into question when the Oregon State University president, who released the letter last week, said that he may reconsider this now-ended relationship based on this arrest. But so far, the Oregon State Police, they haven't said whether or not it's related to this arrest. The timing is very curious, though. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing that's interesting, and we were talking about this in the newsroom, I believe it was yesterday, um, is just the fact that the Oregon State Police is kind of the campus police at OSU. Whereas at U of O, there's the university police force, which is connected to the Eugene Police Department. And I don't know what it's like on other college campuses around the state, but it is interesting that OSP is kind of operating on the campus of OSU. And you're listening to the Northwest Passage. We'll be back momentarily. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. And we're back to the Northwest Passage podcast here on KLCC. I'm Brian Bull, news reporter. I'm joined here with Morning Edition host Ani Katz and reporter and diversity fellow Mallory Begay. And we're going to talk now about some of the news that stayed with us. Mallory, uh, I understand that you actually uh, followed up on a story that I previewed last week that has to do with a very unusual, rather spooky Halloween-themed event uh, that took place on Skinner's Butte. Yeah, I went to the Huge Fun's second annual coffin races. On your marks, get set. And it was a lot of fun. Racers were dressed in costumes. Attendees were dressed in costumes. It was just a lot of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about the course? Because I think it was you or Brian who posted great video of them sending the coffins down the hill, which looked terrifying, first of all. But it was lined with, like, um, hay bales? Yeah, it was lined with hay bales uh, all the way down. Um, It wasn't super steep. It was just a a little incline, although I guess I wasn't in a racer, so I don't know how terrifying it was, but it seemed like all the racers were having a lot of fun going down. Some of them went pretty fast. So, Mallory, out of all the uh, confusion and mayhem and fun, uh, who was the top winner out of the coffin races? So it was Edge Motorsports. They took first place. They, after several heats of going head-to-head between different racers, they were the team that won. Takes it at the line. And you also made mention that the uh, design of the coffin may have played a part in that. Yeah, there were a lot of really fun and cool coffins that were pretty bulky and big. I think the Eugene Springfield Fire Department had two cars connected together to make it look like it was a fire truck. But that one, they got out of the races earlier just because it was so huge and There's an issue with drift and acceleration. It seems like the more aerodynamic cars were the ones who won out. So shocking that a racing company won the won the race, right? Yeah, (laughs) and uh, it was an actual coffin-shaped coffin racer. Yeah, who knew? Who knew the afterlife? I mean, there were Viking ships. There was (laughs) a a police car. Yeah, there was a bathtub. Oh no way! That's right. That's That's right. A lot of fun. (laughs) Ani, what news stuck with you that uh, was of special note? 
Well, uh, people who um, are regular listeners to this podcast may know that I have a little bit of an obsession with uh, sea otters. I'm not wearing my sea otter socks today, but I am going to climb up on my soapbox with my, uh, Brian's checking my socks. I'm wearing cat socks today, actually. Perfectly um, fine. For you. Um, So I'm going to climb up on my soapbox here um, because this news does have to do with sea otters. Um, There's apparently an explosion of purple sea urchin population in Oregon. Now, hold on. I will get to the sea otters, I promise. These spiky creatures destroyed underwater kelp forests in California, and now it could happen here. Numbers released this week by the State Wildlife Agency shows, this is crazy high number, 350 million urchins on one single reef in southern Oregon. Now that's an over 10,000% increase from 2014. So a little perspective on this, um, which is why this story stood out to me because of my sea otter obsession, is sea otters are listed as threatened here in Oregon. They haven't lived here in the wild since the early 1900s. They've been spotted a few times along the coast, but they don't. There, there isn't a population uh, here. They are considered a keystone species. Why? Because they control the population of sea urchins, which in turn protect the kelp forests. Sea otters really like urchins because they are delicious once you can get through their spiky outer crust. I'll take your word um, for it. They really are, I promise. Um, if you ever see uni in a restaurant, definitely order it. Tuna um, fish, please. Tuna fish, yeah, that, that'll work too. Um, so but the fact that we don't have a wild sea otter population to keep the sea urchin population under control is another reason why we should try and bring the sea otters back because it's going to damage our kelp forests, which we need to keep our oceans clean. It's a very fascinating story. Yeah. Well, uh, I learned this morning, uh, before we started taping in the Northwest Passage podcast, that a man named John Garrett died. And uh, Garrett was featured in my two-part series on cahoots earlier this year. And he was a 66-year-old Marine and Vietnam War veteran who had contended with PTSD and living homeless on the streets in downtown Springfield and Highway 99. And I learned this this morning from Amy May. She's a cahoots worker who was in a uh, hospice, uh, helping him kind of transition into the next stage, if you will. He had uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but was determined to stay on until the very end. I was supposed to die by December, but I haven't done it yet. You're stubborn. I know. That's what a Marine does. He hangs in there till the end. I'm going to go on my own terms. You know, I'm not going to let this illness stop me. When I get ready, then I'm going. May tells me that Garrett passed away this morning with his faithful dog, Candy, by his side. He was a very enthusiastic supporter of Cahoots, who gave him rides and support while homeless. Thanks for following up on that story. It's good to to keep people updated about different people that you've gotten to follow around. It's it's something that we don't always get to do in our story, so I was very uh, appreciative of the note. That concludes the latest installment of the Northwest Passage. Thank you for listening. I'm Brian Bull, news reporter. I'm Mallory Begay, news reporter. I'm Ani Katz, host of Morning Edition. Thank you for joining us. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank makes a difference in our community through sponsorship of Lane County organizations and the Warm Hearts Winter Drive, supporting homeless shelters across the Northwest. More information on how Columbia Bank team members give back to Lane County is available at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule. Member FDIC.